Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Dean Detloff. And I'm your co-pilot of Spaceship Earth, Matt Bernico. Oh, what are the uh, what are the sliders and gears and gizmos you got on that Spaceship Earth? I got the button that makes it go to the left. Dangerous. <laughs> Too <And> cold. <laughs> <laughs> the button that makes it go to the right. Too hot. And, That's what I learned from Kirk uh, Cameron. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, I got a big, a big spinny wheel, and that's the one that makes it go around the moon just right. <laughs> the Earth goes around the moon just right. All right, <laughs> it's going around the moon. I don't know what to say. I'm, I'm driving the spaceship. I don't know how it works. I just know that I'm driving it. I feel like a, a lot of problems with tides, but good news for surfers, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, anyways, um, the reason I'm piloting Spaceship Earth tonight is because uh, we're going to be talking about a really cool book. We're doing a little bit more of a Magnificast um, book report here this time around. Um, Leonardo Boff's book, The Cry of the Earth, The Cry of the Poor, in which he employs a uh, a metaphor about Earth being a spaceship. So that's the joke. So <laughs> there's, no, there's no way you would have gotten that before I explained it. So... <laughs> There's one nerd out there who's like, oh, I know exactly where this is coming from. <laughs> That's right. Somebody out there is, is getting it for sure. It's Leonardo Boff well, himself. He's listening and he's like, oh, they're talking about me this week. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyways, we've spent the last few weeks talking about the Bible. And it's been fun. I've had a good time. Um, as a as an adult sort of recovering from evangelicalism, reading the Bible is not like a... a a daily spiritual practice that I have, um, I think kind of been ruined for me in a lot of different ways, (laughs) but, uh, lately I've been getting back into it for some different reasons and, uh, it's been fun. The Bible, you know, somebody said this to me the other day and I think it's true. This is a reflection that, uh, I guess I can bring to the table here. The Bible is one of the few pieces of mass media in the United States that has something very positive to say about poor people. That's pretty cool. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. It's got a lot of other things to say, but that is a good one. It has other things to say, but let's cherry pick the good stuff and yeah. let's leave the rest of it behind because that's the type of Christian I am. I'm the cherry picking kind. We all are. You just have to pick the right cherries. <laughs> that's right. Well, okay. So we've been doing we've been doing a little bit of the Bible study in the past few weeks, and it's been fantastic. We love it. It's great. Um, but anyways, we're gonna take a little bit of a break from the Bible as such. I mean, we're always talking about the Bible in one way or another, I'm sure. But we're gonna take a break from talking about verses and passages and pericopes and whatnot. <laughs> Instead, we're going to talk about a really neat book that I picked up over the last few weeks and been reading through. Uh, it's by the Brazilian liberation theologian Leonardo Boff um, called, right, Cry of the Earth. Oh, I said this already, but I'll say it again. Cry of the Earth, <laughs> Cry of the Poor. Uh, Boff is a really well-known kind of like liberation theology type of person uh, for writing about eco-theology. I think that's maybe one of the big things. He's also written a lot about base communities and whatnot. Uh, he's, he's got a lot of good stuff going on, but, um, eco-theology is at least the way that I know about him. Um, Dean, I'll ask you to give more context maybe in a minute about Leonard Boff, but not yet. Um, <laughs> the, this book is really cool because it brings some of the best of the eco-theology stuff out. Um, uh, it brings the best of it out and it brings the weirdest of it out for sure. Um, the really fascinating thing about this book, I think, and why it is particularly interesting to us on this podcast is that Boff explains the connection between ecology as a type of like attitude toward the world, um, and also liberation theology. So he kind of draws a pretty, a pretty good line between how those two ideas are related and why we should kind of be thinking about them both in tandem. The big idea is that poverty and ecological devastation are interconnected, like the same force is causing both of them, um, capitalism. Um, I, I guess among other forces, capitalism is a big one though. 
Um, but they uh, they also have common solutions in a new type of ecological democracy, um, what Boff has coined at the end of his book as something called cosmic democracy, which is pretty, it's a great name. I love it. <laughs> so It in, is a good name. Yeah. In this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about this book, give you a book report, tell you about what we've been reading. And uh, then the end, though, I think we can kind of get to uh, some kind of deeper understanding of the ways that the struggle for liberation from capitalism and other related forms of oppression rely on also coming to terms with um, ecology in our in our kind of place within the world as such. Um, all right. Well, before we get into it, uh, Dean, tell us about Leonardo Boff. Who is he? What's this guy all about? Sure. Leonardo Boff, he is one of the original big liberation theologians, a very interesting character. Um, there is so much to say about him. He famously was silenced um, by Ratzinger under John Paul II. That is one reason a lot of people know about him. It was an extremely controversial move by the Vatican. He was silenced for a year, and in that year, he uh, went to Cuba <laughs> and also went around the world. And uh, it's pretty wild, actually. You can read a lot of cool stories about it. Harvey Cox wrote a book called The Silencing of Leonardo Boff. Lots of other people did too, but there's interesting stories of like people protesting John Paul II in Europe over like the silencing of Boff. So just a, you know, worldwide character. What was he silenced for? Uh, it depends on who you ask. <laughs> but um, I mean, he uh, the way I've always sort of heard it really is he embraced base communities a little too much. Uh, according to the Vatican, they were suspicious that he was a uh, uh, losing some of the specificity of the role of the priest and the parish and all the rest of it, but uh, I won't speak too much about it. You can sure. read people who are smarter than me. If I was the talk Pope, about I would have done that. You know what? A hot take, but I have to agree. <laughs> um, he's very interesting. He also has a brother named Clodovis Boff, and the two of them are both liberation theologians, although they had kind of a weird falling out over liberation theology in, I forget what year, but in the 2000s. Um, Leonardo Boff was like, it's still really great. Glodovis Boff was like, it has some problems. Um, anyway, they both grew up in Brazil. Um, their family was like into social justice. Their dad was a school teacher and they, uh, talk about how he was like invested in the struggle of poor people and, uh, black people, especially, um, people forget like, I don't know. We talk about the slave trade in the U.S. a lot, but more Africans were enslaved and taken to Brazil than any other country. And it uh, Brazil abolished slavery later, like close to 20 years later, I think, after uh, the U.S. abolished slavery. So um, interesting stuff. Anyway, uh, Leonardo Boff became a Franciscan. He worked in the slums of uh, Petropolis and he worked in the Amazon as well. So lots of interest in indigenous spirituality. And that's kind of where some of the ecology stuff comes from. His brother was also a religious priest, um, a Servite, I think. Uh, anyway, um, Leonardo Boff, uh, he wrote a ton of fascinating books like you just mentioned that he wrote a great book on base communities called ecclesiogenesis he wrote a big book um jesus the liberator that was one of the original ones um there's a cool book by both the boff brothers called introducing liberation theology oh, yeah. it's like a great textbook i used to teach it in classes when i did that um let's see what else to say uh leonardo boff he uh he's like He's one of the more adventurous theologically liberation theologians, maybe for better and worse, depending on who you are. Um, 
he is like he'll borrow from you know new agey sort of ideas or like quantum physics right. and all the kind of wild stuff that people were writing about in the 90s <laughs> and the early 2000s um and i i don't know that some people don't like that i think it's just very fun he's having a good time with it um, sometimes for better sometimes he, for worse it gets wild yeah <laughs> It does. It gets very wild. Um, Leonardo Bob did eventually leave the priesthood formally, and he got married, and he is living his best life out there. He still has a blog. Uh, still has a blog. Still a Catholic. Um, yeah, he's getting up there in age, but he is still out there in the streets. Um, I uh, knew a guy who went to Brazil before the pandemic, not too long before that and uh, took a great picture of him at like a Lula solidarity rally with a big megaphone. So he's still, still doing his thing. Anyway, that's Leonardo Boff, a person of the people. Oh, I should say, okay, he's a theologian, um, a great writer, but also he is somebody who is like genuinely invested in people's struggles. And that's really like why I think he's worth reading. You know, he's somebody who's trying to reflect on stuff that he's actually working on when he's like mobilizing people or working with organizers and all that kind of stuff. So uh, a cool person to know about. In the yeah, church. absolutely. I think he's very cool. I like him a lot. Um, <laughs> I'll take the the new age stuff even. Um, <laughs> maybe I don't. <laughs> I don't believe it all, but it's great. It's still fun. Um, it's not like boring church stuff. Sometimes you get some really weird, some really weird stuff. Um, okay. So, anyways, in in this book, he has a lot going on, but we're going to focus in on the chapter that uh, he kind of connects liberation theology and the like ecological discourse. Um, because I think it's a really interesting point to work out that, um, that, uh, I mean, liberation theology and Christianity in general is, are, are two ways of thinking about the world that puts humans at the center. That is like insistent that like, you know, humans are the main attraction. Uh, but the way that Leonardo Boff does it, I think is kind of interesting because he displaces humans just a, just a, t- just a tad, just a little bit scooches them over and says, look, there are all these other things you should probably think about too. Uh, trees, animals, other things, rivers. Never, <laughs> you ever heard, of them? heard of them, you idiot? <laughs> Anyways, um, and the the liberation of individuals, the liberation of people are, um, it's it's interconnected with the, um, uh, with, with ecology, with thinking through um, uh, anthropocentrism, with thinking through ecological destruction and so on. So, it's a it's a cool connection to make, and I think it's one that um, increasingly, as um, the winters get warmer, <laughs> um, I don't know if, I don't know if it's like this where everyone else lives, but in the place where I live in Missouri, uh, the last few winters have been five degrees warmer than they have been in the past, and I gotta tell you, that's bad. Um, so, anyways, as the as global warming becomes um, more and more of a lived reality, and it becomes becomes like an undeniable kind of part of life, I think like these conversations become even more prescient and uh, important to have. So let's do it. Um, <laughs> One quick note: this book in particular, "Cry the Earth and Cry the Poor," uh, it was very formative on ecology and kind of eco theology. Uh, and there's, I guess, two quick notes. One is. People might recognize that phrase already from Laudato Si, uh, Pope Francis's first encyclical. I mean, technically second, but really first, um, where he uses that phrase and italicizes it. He doesn't like cite Boff, but I mean, that's what he's talking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pretty clear. Uh, and that's very interesting. And Boff has written quite a lot about Pope Francis and uh, you can read a lot about it. Um, yeah. Interesting relationship between the two of them, I think. 
the other point to make is a lot of people recognize this book as a pivotal one in the development of ecotheology, and it is for sure. But there's also a lot of really interesting ecofeminist theology coming out around the same time, especially in Brazil. Um, there's a really cool theologian, Yvonne Gabara, who wrote a lot of ecofeminism stuff, and she's in dialogue with Boff and others too. But uh, I think sometimes, like, Boff through, I, I don't know, I don't think any fault of his own, but, like, just by virtue of probably being a man and being a person writing for a long time, he kind of gets, like, uh, boosted as the eco-theologian, uh, or kind of, like, doing it before it was cool. But uh, eco-feminism has a very, very rich tradition, especially in Brazil. So, anyway, all that to say, um, Boff rules, and so do all these other a people. A good note to make. <laughs> all right, well, let's let's start parsing this out a bit here. Um, how are liberation theology and ecology interconnected? Well, Leonardo Boff has this to say. Liberation theology and ecological discourse have something in common. They start from two bleeding wounds. The wound of poverty that breaks the social fabric of millions and millions of poor people around the world. And then also the other wound is ecological destruction. Um, he goes on to say that both seek liberation, a liberation of the poor by themselves as active subjects who are organized, conscious, and networked to their other allies who take on their cause and their struggle, and a liberation of the earth through new covenants between it and human beings in a brotherly and sisterly relationship and with a kind of sustainable development that respects the different ecosystems and assures a good quality of life for future generations. Okay. So from the very start here, th these are like the opening um, paragraphs, maybe like the second paragraph into the into this chapter, and just parsing these things out. Um, so the thing that um, the liberation theology and the ecological dis discourse, um, they are both about um, a wrong in the world that is uh, being caused by capitalism. He names it explicitly, so don't think I'm just kind of putting it in there. Um, but they're both about they're <laughs> both about a type of liberation. And it's really interesting because they, um, I mean, they're 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 not just like material liberations. Um, I mean, they are for sure. Um, you can't really do them without <laughs> materially changing the world for sure. But um, but both liberation of the poor and um, the liberation of like ecology, I guess, however we would put that, they are also changes in the ways that we like consider our like place in the world. And I think that's quite interesting. Um, you know, it's it's um, liberation of the poor is is um, it's changing this type of like um, I, it's, it changes the type of person who is like the actor in politics um, rather than um, I don't know. I don't want to throw any shade at Lindness um, <laughs> for, for reasons, but, you know, instead <laughs> of like a vanguard party being the person that's leading the poor or something into the revolution or, you know, whatever, some other type of like community organizer. This is talking about the poor taking up their like. T taking up their liberation by themselves, right? A real, a real good pedagogy of the oppressed kind of idea. I mean, it's explicitly coming from that kind of context. There you go. Um, but it's also um, so it's about that. But it's also about a, a new covenant between people and and the and the world that um, that puts human beings in a brotherly and sisterly relationship. Which those um, <laughs> those uh, two words can be complicated, I guess. But um, they're kind of they carry this sort of like Saint Francis connotation, right? With uh, with um mm -hmm. you know different different types of um like brother moon and so on um so you get these two types of things not only is it about material changes in the world but it's also about a like a different way of thinking about um your place in the world in two different contexts 
Yeah, it's interesting, too, the way that he links them. So they both are linked through the the wounds, right? The wound of poverty and the wound of uh, ecological destruction. Um, so the cry of the earth, the cry of the poor. But I think also the uh, that other link that they both seek a certain liberation is important because the liberation is also founded on on relationships. Right. So it's like the poor are active subjects, but also they have to work with mm-hmm. a ton of other people. Um, they got to work with allies. They have to be organized, et cetera. And it's the same with the liberation of the earth that it's only liberated through that covenant, that other relationship with human beings that they can, you know, that the earth can be liberated as well. And that's what I love so much about Boff is that he, I mean, I mentioned he has these kind of new agey ideas. He can be a little bit like utopian or idealist, but he does always root that vision or those dreams in these really like concrete, um, uh affirmations of like it's going to take real relationships between identifiable groups of people and like the earth to actually figure this stuff out so i really like putting those two things together the uh you know they they both arise out of uh the the wounds but then they're also both sort of like the way you bind up those wounds is by working with lots of other folks and really yeah that's right um which kind of, I mean, it's um, it's no surprise then that he thinks that democracy is is kind of the answer, which we'll get to here in a little bit. Um, but that's what he's talking about, though. It's a it's a pretty radical type of democracy, not uh, I don't know, not the boring kind. <laughs> um, okay, so but beneath the surface, you know, you have these problems, these two wounds, and there's a lot of causes of these wounds for sure. Um, but the ecological one is uh, the one that he kind of calls out in this way that I think is pretty helpful. So, I mean, I think that you can probably make some connections too between poverty and, and the, and, and the cause too here, but um, I don't know. It makes the most sense with ecology. I'll, I'll read this part and we'll kind of get into it, I guess a little bit here. Um, so boss says that, you know, the underlying cause is, is attributable to uh, an arrogant anthropocentrism that's at work. One which lies at the root of contemporary societies. Human beings understand ourselves as beings above other beings and lords of life and death over them. Uh, then he goes on to say, human beings must discover our place in this global community along with other species, not outside or above them. There's no justification for anthropocentrism, but that does not mean ceasing to regard the human being as unique as that being of nature through whom nature itself achieves its own spatial curve, breaks out of reflex and awareness, becomes capable of co-piloting the evolutionary process and emerges as an ethical being, assuming responsibility for bringing the entire planet to a happy fate. <laughs> There's a lot going on here, for sure. Um, but uh, <laughs> but you get it, right? So, like, ecological destruction, and also, I mean, like, the destruction of other people, the, the oppression of people, the, the existence of poverty. There's a certain type of anthropocentrism at work in it all that places... Uh, humans as just like he says the lords of life and death and that um, ends up being not only bad for other people who um, might be um, you know uh, understood as less than human or uh, at the margins of humanity or something it's bad for them but it's also bad for everything else it's bad for rivers it's bad for mountains it's bad for trees it's bad for animals and all these kinds of things right (laughs) um i think this is uh this is this is a type of critique that i think i've actually invested a lot of time in my academic life thinking about um anthropocentrism is an idea that i do not like um though it's inescapable um but i think it's really compelling when people talk about it um in the grand scheme of ontology or in the grand scheme of ethics uh humans have you know unique capabilities in the world 
but they often consider themselves a little too strongly. And I, I find that really compelling. I know. I read your whole dissertation once. Um, People, they suck. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I I agree. It's interesting to get that in a theological register here as well. I often think about this text. So this came out in the 90s. And I think about how far ahead liberation theology is compared to the rest of the world all the time. Like when I was in college, so in the mid 2000s, in the Obama years, um, the the word of the day floating around was yeah. always stewardship at best um, and kind of dealing with that weird problem of dominion out of uh, Genesis that humans are supposed to have dominion over the earth. And evangelicals are always kind of wringing their hands over what to do with these terms. And uh, stewardship became, I guess, the the kind of word that's supposed to reconcile all this stuff. Like humans have lordship over the earth, but they're supposed to like have that lordship in a, you know, a responsible way as caretakers um, of an earth that isn't their own. You know, all these kind of ways that evangelicals try to soften that a bit, I guess. And what I love about Boff is you just like, yeah, He's not interested in that problem. <laughs> Just, uh, I don't know. Look around you. This is the problem. Humans are outside the environment. They should not see themselves as as that, you know, and uh, really just kind of trying to get rid of the idea of uh, dominion or dominating schemas altogether. And I think that makes such a huge difference. And it's one that I wish more Christians would get on board with. And I, I mean, I think Pope Francis actually has been helping us do that. He also criticizes anthropocentrism hmm. uh, in Laudato Si and elsewhere. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's so important to be able to have that kind of theological critique of that since so much of the Christian tradition is also about seeing the human as kind of the pinnacle of creation instead of uh, equalizing right. humans yeah. a little bit more. I mean, more. if this book would have pivoted to talk about Genesis and about Dominion, I would probably close it right away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, not because that's not interesting, but because it's just such boring territory, I think. And it is so, like you said, hand-wringing. Like, you know, what are we going to do? What does this word mean? How, we have to read it in the original Hebrew. We have to figure this all out. And, like, whatever. That's nerd shit. Um, but I think the thing I find really, like, really compelling about anthropocentrism um, or, or critiques of it is that, like, how, how arrogant it is, first of all, but also how completely stupid anthropocentrism is. Like... <laughs> Um, humans have a way of thinking that um, makes us constantly think we're smarter than we are and that like not we're, we're not in situations with other things like other I don't know for lack of a better word actors um, you know we're above them is, is the way we think about it we think that we we have sort of complete control over these situations especially in highly technical um, situations you know like uh, settings where we're dealing with like in with problems that um, involve increasingly technocratic answers, like we think that we kind of have complete control over them because we have a certain, a certain objective quote unquote way of like looking at them. But like uh, if you look at the, if you look at the history of science, which is something that's, it's fun to read about or, or just like sociologies of science, you find like you find this type of like arrogant anthropocentrism really unfounded because people are so incredibly blind and stupid to their <laughs> surroundings like okay <laughs> i mean there's a thousand different ways to talk about this but um some of my favorite have to do with like nuclear waste um <laughs> so okay uh there's a bunch of nuclear power plants in the united states i mean across the world there's a bunch of them um and those power plants inevitably um have a a nuclear byproduct that will last for a very very long time 
um, you know, impossibly long, longer than any other human that, that is alive now, thousands and thousands of years, if not more. I don't even know. I'm not a scientist. Anyway, so like, you know, nobody thinks about the 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 question of like disposing of of this like radioactive waste. They just think about how cool it is that we have power plants, <laughs> right? <laughs> so like the the um like what we do kind of comes secondary. So like um the answer, in case you didn't know, like what happens to like radioactive waste in the United States and elsewhere is that you find a very deep cave that is hopefully like geologically sound. And you just put it in the cave and then you forget about it. And you put a sign out front and says, like, don't go in this cave. It's bad. <laughs> it's bad in there, guys. And like that's it. And that's the that's the solution to our very dumb human technocratic problem. And it's it's a bad one because, like, they constantly leak. Um, there's all kinds of other problems. Um, you know, radioactive Godzilla's. <laughs> Godzilla's. You get killer monsters. You get all kinds of kaiju. But also, like, radioactive waste like can, like, seep into the groundwater all, all all matter of thing can go wrong in these highly technical solutions because humans think of themselves as like being too smart or like having this like sort of objective way of understanding the problem so that they don't really ever think that like sometimes things are just like gonna get screwed up <laughs> or whatever mm-hmm. right we just don't think of all of the other ways that the that a situation could go because we think of ourselves as like particularly smart or particularly good at problem solving or something so anyways mm-hmm. In light of all of that, I appreciate all, ty- all 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 critiques of anthropocentrism because I think that humans could always just be just just could always stand to be taken down a peg. Um, yeah. <laughs> we're not as smart as we think we are. Yeah, I agree. I mean, this is just a minor, I guess, uh, way of making the same exact point you were just making. But like, I remember uh, when I was a kid, and you're just sort of asking questions about the world around you, coming to terms with it, figuring it out. I remember having uh, like. At, at like a birthday party having a plastic plate um and having uh being like what should i do with this plate and some adult was like oh it's disposable so you throw it away and i guess i was old enough to register you know disposable like whatever you dispose of it and i thought to myself like it's only disposable because someone told me that it's garbage which is like <laughs> the absolute weirdest way to like categorize an object in the world And I always think about that because it was like a realization I had as a kid trying to figure stuff out. And like still as an adult, it sticks with me that like, so, you know, you go, you get like takeout at your favorite restaurant and they give you a bunch of disposable stuff, which literally just means like we're giving you a bunch of stuff, a bunch of garbage (laughs) that you won't keep in your apartment. (laughs) And like, that's not smart. That's a bad way to do what we're doing. Uh, But nevertheless, here we are doing it all the time. Uh, You can only do that if you see yourself as like, you know, if you live in a society that alienates human beings from mm-hmm. things that are not human. Yeah, that's a great, a great way of thinking. I mean, all that to say that like humans, um, we have a unique type of control over things in the world. We have a, a unique capacity to act on the world around us. But we often um, we often underestimate the world, the way that the world can act back on us. And we don't we don't mm-hmm. take it very seriously. That sucks. Okay. Yeah. Anthropocentrism is a bad idea, and we're going to keep kind of dealing with it throughout this episode. So if you don't like that, sorry. <laughs> so Leonard Boff, he goes on to say, um, in light of this like kind of critique that he's building, he says, hence, liberation can never be restricted to the material, social, or merely spiritual realm. It's only true when it remains open to the full sweep of human demands. It has been the merit of liberation theology to have maintained its comprehensive scope since its origins. It did so because it was correctly interpreting what human liberation is about, 
not because of the demands of doctrinal authorities in the Vatican. So liberation is not, um, it's not about any one thing, right? It's not like, um, it's not about the liberation of just like the material conditions, right? Because that would just be, I don't know, I guess like regular Marxism, which is great, I guess. Um, <laughs> but like, it's about all of these things kind of together. Um, it has to be open to the, the, I like the phrase, full sweep of human demands. There's um, That there's all of these different things bound up in liberation, not just like, not just the material, the social, or the spiritual. It's all of these things together, and, and maybe, I don't know, maybe some more things that we could throw in there. So um, that's helpful because when we're talking about liberation in terms of ecology or in terms of, like, I don't know, the liberation of people from capitalism or other oppressive forces, um, you know, you get this more holistic view that um, it's not just one of these things. Like, just changing the material conditions would be great. But maybe there's there's a there's more liberation to be done. Yeah, I think that piece is really important, too, because the holistic piece is it goes in so many directions, right? It's like the liberation is material, which means you have to ask material questions about the organization of capitalism. And and like you said, it can sometimes like Marxism can help you out, but also it can maybe miss parts of that holistic vision. And uh, that's what I love about Buff too. He has such a big concern for how everything hangs together all the time. And that is, I guess also the inverse part of being upset about anthropocentrism, right? Like uh, instead of abstracting the human out of the environment, you always want to put the human back in the environment. Plus, figure out how they relate, how they plug in in all these different ways. I don't know. Plugging in, I guess, is kind of a weird metaphor. But guess what? Yeah. Technology is also part of the environment. So <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, it's good. I mean, you know, it it's interesting because it does tell you, I guess, what Boff thinks about liberation, that it's like it's a project that's bigger than the political economy. And that, like, I don't know, it, it makes uh, it makes liberation theology way, I think, way more radical than Marxism is because it's demanding so much more and it's open to so much more. Um, and I don't know, I find that kind of compelling. Um, I mean, there's a critique of Marxism in there too, that like, it's just, it's not enough just to change the the base and the superstructure will follow or something. You have to, you have to do more than that. And uh, I don't know. Um, it's a critique of Marxism, but probably one that uh, <laughs> Marxism can deal with, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can definitely find Marxists on their own terms trying to maybe talk about what they might not refer to as spiritual, but you could mm -hmm. understand as such. Like I think of like Che Guevara's essay about a uh, man under socialism or the human being under socialism, which is basically that, right? Like I forget how he puts it exactly, but the idea is that the revolution in Cuba is trying to not only change the political situation and the economic one, but to change the very essence mm -hmm. of what it means to be a human being. Right. And so there, there's definitely a sort of spiritual moment in it, but yeah, it's like <laughs> the fact that you can also get away with being a Marxist without doing that or with while pretending that you don't really have to transform like yeah. people <laughs> is a complicated thing. Yeah, totally. I mean, um, I don't know. There's plenty of moments in the history of uh, socialist projects where you need you need some more transformation, right? right. <laughs> Not enough is happening or uh, it, it's only focused in one aspect. Okay. Well, speaking of that transformation, um, like I mentioned a few minutes ago, Boff has a particular sort of actor in mind, right? And that's the poor. Um, uh, maybe a, a different formulation um, uh, than Marxism as well. So I guess that's something interesting, right? Instead of, instead of in, like in Marxism, you know, it's like the working class, it's um, whatever, the proletariat. Um, for Boff, it's just the poor kind of as a an, um, as a as a class of people who he thinks can um, 
organized and they can liberate themselves, which I think is a pretty compelling idea, honestly. Mm-hmm. So he says, uh, we should insist that it's not churches that liberate the poor, nor the welfare state, whether it's socialist or social democrat, nor those classes that aid them. They may be allies of the poor, provided that they do not deprive them of their leading role in, uh, in the leadership of liberation. We can speak of liberation only when the poor themselves emerge as the primary agent of their journey, even when they have support from others. So again, you have this you have this frame where it's like liberation means more than just changing the economic um, factors in society, right? It's more than just changing the political economy. It's about the transformation of people um, to be like a type of protagonist within their own society. And I think it's cool. I, I mean, there's... Um, there are Marxist ways, I think, of saying something similar, but um, the way that Boff is saying it here, I think, is really compelling. Um, yeah, I mean, like, the poor unite as sort of like a, I mean, as a type of class, and then they organize themselves and lead the way. I mean, it, it, it gives you, like, a, a vision of societal change that is just, like, it's just it's just a very big one, right? It's the transformation of people and economics and every, and everything kind of all happening. Yeah, there's also a i think unique uh difference from marxism here too because the focus on the poor and treating the poor as a class is kind of what you're not supposed to do right if you're marx and engels um dang hang on now my cat is like <laughs> it's okay <laughs> scratching at her litter box uh all very funny talk about Yeah, there's also there is such an interesting difference here with Marxism as well, because the way that he talks about the poor as a class is actually what you're not supposed to do if you're Marx and Engels. Right. So you uh, like (laughs) Marx and Engels want to talk about the proletariat, the working class, and they say the lumpen proletariat or the the underclass um, or the poor, the non-working class. Those aren't really like they're important. They're not bad people necessarily, but like they're not where you're going to find the energy to organize Mm -hmm. against capitalism. Um, And so you shouldn't focus on them. And it's interesting the ways that other social movements have dealt with that problem, right? Like the Black Panther Party uh, invested in Marxism for sure, but also intentionally disagreeing with Marx on that point Mm -hmm. by organizing explicitly the the lumpen proletariat or the young lords in, in the U.S. context. Um, but that's what I love about liberation theology is that it also, um, I don't know, I don't call it like a challenge to Marx, although maybe it is, but it's more sort of, um, making a bet that Marxism, of course, like you need the working class for sure, but what you really need is the poor. Mm -hmm. And if you get the poor on board, then, uh, the working class, you know, they can sign up too. Yeah. I like, okay. It is maybe a challenge to Marxism is maybe a good idea. I mean, like in Marx, it makes sense why you would think that the um, the um, the formation of like the working class as like a as discrete class that could fight back against the capitalist class. Why that would make sense because like workers mm-hmm. hold a lever of power, right? That other people don't. That the the ability right. to say like to, to stop working is a huge lever of power, and that makes complete sense. So of course, like if you're gonna fight a class war, and the antagonistic classes are the bourgeoisie and the proletariat you know um it it makes sense that you would want to um radicalize and form you know workers into a class because they 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 can hurt the bourgeoisie the most right just with their lever Mm -hmm. of power but like 
I don't know. Um, there's a lot of reasons to think that there's something to the <laughs> the organization of the lumpen or the poor or however we might phrase that. I mean, it, there's there's a lot of different distinctions we can make, especially in 2022. There's a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of dynamics to this, I think. But like, I don't know. Um, uh, in the United States, at least, I mean, I'm sure this is probably the case in most places in the world. Like there are there are more poor people there are more low wage workers than probably anyone else right like that's probably the biggest mm-hmm. the biggest chunk of the population uh if you could if you uh if if your social movement could you know unite the poor and organize them as a class you'd have a pretty good <laughs> a pretty good lever of power <laughs> itself right so i don't know uh there's something to consider there um i mean there are, like I said, there are Marxist ways of talking about this too. Like, I mean, the Black Panthers had had a particular sort of way to work this out. But I think it's, um, I don't know, it's a it's a cool feature of liberation theology that I'm here for. A good challenge to Marxism. Yeah. Um, but, but there's also maybe something bigger too here than, than just like levers of power, even though that's part of it. Because it's not just like, um, you're not, you don't, it's not that like Boff thinks you should organize the poor so that you can have like the biggest hammer to wield against the ruling class. It's that like you should uh, it, it's like that the poor should like organize themselves and like train themselves up to be the types of leaders and people that can do that. So it's not like I don't know. There's, there's not like an instrumentalization of power in this. It's about the transformation of people and their liberation that they are they themselves are like finding. Yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting pieces here, too, because even in the history of Latin America, I mean, one reason it makes sense to talk about the poor uh, as a category in Brazil is that, like, yes, there are lots of them in the U.S. that lots of people who would be categorized as the poor in the U.S., but even more demographically in mm-hmm. a country like Brazil, uh, where proletarianization is is happening, but not nearly in the same way or as at a pace like in the U.S., for example, um, or at least that the U.S. has gone through. And I think uh, that makes a huge difference, too, right? Like the the majority of people would fall into that poor category. And uh, there's actually a lot of power in that majority as well. So um, whether you're working the land or uh, I think of like the Caracazo in Venezuela, right? Like all the poor just sort of descending from the hills mm-hmm. um, or like in the favelas in Brazil to take, I guess, a direct example. There's all kinds of. Um, really important and fascinating and inspiring examples of people organizing for like better housing, better public infrastructure and all this kind of stuff. Because at the end of the day, like if you have a lot of people, you can also be extremely annoying (laughs) and like bother a lot of folks. And you can also leverage even weird things like voting and all that is as complicated as that stuff Mm -hmm. is. Uh, But I agree, Matt. I mean, ultimately the key is not even finding the, the perfect lever of power, but really for liberation theology, it's investing in the creative energies of the poor yeah. and being like, you know, that's where the new society is going to emerge is from that feeling of empowerment, even more than that feeling of like, well, we solved the formula, the equation of power. And that's why we, yeah, win. totally cool. Good point. <laughs> I agree. Okay. Well, we're getting close to the end here, so we need to, we need to pick up the pace. So here's the thing. Um, here's the thing here about um, ecology and the poor. Uh, Boff says that the very same logic of the prevailing system of accumulation and social organization that leads the ex- that leads to the exploitation of workers 
also leads to the pillaging of whole nations and ultimately to the plundering of nature, right? So um, he's making this connection here that like the the same force that um, makes poor people, that produces them, right, that produces the affect of poverty in, in a nation is the same system that is also uh, plundering nature that's like going to destroy it, right? And that's true. I mean, like, uh, I, I guess, you know, there are those two wounds that we talked about, but they're both kind of caused by the same knife or whatever i don't know um so so boff thinks that like these these two things poverty and ecological destruction they're both interconnected and the same thing is causing both of them um and that you could only really deal with them with the um transformation of the poor into a really protagonistic class that can that can like really organize themselves and do something about it and there's something really cool about that i think um Man, there's so much more that Boff says, but let's get to maybe the, some of the stuff here about politics. Um, so when he when it comes to doing like justice in these situations, or to like I don't know, fighting this particular fight or fighting class war in this in this way with 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 this like language in mind, um, he he thinks that there's like some a, a new type of well, I guess maybe this is the way to say it. We we keep saying over and over that like. Liberation is about this idea that's bigger than just economic change. It's it's bigger than, you know, like a socialist, I don't know, political economy or something. There's something more going on there. So let's get to that part of it. So Boff says that, like, the type of justice that we're going for in, entails more than just social justice. It entails a new covenant between human beings and other beings. And then he says it's a new gentleness toward what is created. So um, when we're thinking about, like, what type of people do we want to be in the world to... Um, to be protagonists uh, against uh, against the, the capitalist sort of order that that creates poverty and ecological destruction, it means that there's there's a new way of being in the world. You have to you have to be different. You can't just kind of like recreate the same problems. You can't just like try to seize power and then hope things will be better because you're now reorganizing things. He wants to like uh, change sort of the consciousness of people who are fighting these fights. In the way they think about themselves and the way that they think about other things that are created uh, and along the lines of a, a new type of gentleness. Um, so there's a lot. Uh, I mean, a new type of gentleness is like, a, I don't know, what does that mean? What could it possibly mean politically? And I'm going to tell you right now what it means politically. <laughs> so um, <laughs> Boff, like Dean said, at the top of this episode was a Franciscan and um, Francis, uh, St. Francis. You know that one, the, the communist one. That's in, that's that's a saint. Uh, he shows up quite a bit in this book, and Saint Francis is kind of like the 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 model of um, of a poor person who is exhibiting this type of gentleness towards what's created. And Boff works the example of Saint Francis out in a political way that I think is really compelling and something I'm kind of excited about. Um, so Boff says this: planetary, ecological, and social democracy. That's the answer. The ecological crisis affects us all, and hence it demands that we be involved in establishing a new covenant with nature. The political arrangement that best embodies group participation is democracy. More than simply a way to organize a common life in society, it's a universal value. Democracy can be lived wherever persons relate to one another, in the family, at school, in associations, in civil society, in churches, and in larger society. Um, so... So there's this new sense of democracy, not just uh, social democracy, but a planetary ecological and social democracy, all of these things together. Um, and that's cool. I like that a lot. Let me read one more thing and we can talk about it, Dean. Sorry, there's just a mm -hmm. lot going on here. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I mentioned this thing about St. Francis that kind of comes into play here. 
Boff says that all things are alive and personal. Through intuition, St. Francis discovered what we now know empirically that all living things are brothers and sisters because they all share the same genetic code. I'm not sure about the science on that one. I'll take his word for it. Why not? Do all things share the same genetic code? I don't know, man. Who could say? Yeah. Uh, who could say? <laughs> it's a great question. <laughs> Anyways, Francis experienced this consanguinity in a mystical way. We all live together under the same parental roof because we are brothers and sisters. We love one another. Violence among family members is never justified. Um, there's a um, there's a a description that he uses elsewhere in the book um, that's talking about Earth as like a, a type of spaceship, right? And we're all on the spaceship together, though some of us are like first class passengers and some of us are like you know second and third class um and uh he says that we have to be good co-pilots and maybe that's another way of saying this that we're we're all brothers and sisters on this one big under this one big parental roof or something um okay and then finally rounding out the political part of this um so he, we talk, he talked about uh the planetary ecological and social democracy but then he kind of comes to this other term cosmic democracy Cosmic democracy becomes human and spiritual democracy, assuring that there is a place for the poor and the outcast. St. Francis had a foretaste of such harmony and experienced it. Ecology, the science of living well in our shared planetary home, becomes ecosophy, the wisdom of living well among things. So um, there's more and more that we can kind of get into. Boff has a lot to say about these particular ideas. But he's envisioning a type of society um, that thinks of humans as sort of just a part of the team. You know, you're living on the same planet as like bugs and stuff, <laughs> bugs and fish and snakes <laughs> and whatever, <laughs> all the other animals that I'm didn't, I didn't name right now. Bugs, fish, snakes. That's all that got on the. the yeah, earth. that's right. Um, but you're living amongst them and, and that they too, uh, uh, the, the larger ecosystems that they're a part of all, all of it, right. All the whole created order should have some kind of place within democracy and I find that to be such a compelling idea. I like it a lot to think through, like, um, not just what humans uh, want or desire, whatever their political will is, uh, but also, like, comporting yourself in such a way that, like, you also have to consider, like, what is actually good good for the ecosystem or something. And it's a really hard thing to do because those things are intention many times because um, of growth and um, uh, the, the whole idea of capital accumulation and whatnot. But... It's a really compelling idea, I think, to figure out politically, to think about um, to think about like what space does the environment have within our democracy? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of uh, weird legal studies stuff about that and a lot of political philosophy about it, too, I know. Um, but I always think about in Bolivia, for example, they gave rights to the earth, um, which is a complicated thing, <laughs> hard yeah. to enforce, but nevertheless, it's a, a legal recognition that, you know, uh, humans are not the only rights bearing creatures in the world. And as far as human rights go, uh, I don't know if you're going to have rights, you might as well give them to everybody. <laughs> they're, they're weird, weird constructions. You might as well give them to the earth. Um, but I also think a lot about these more expansive categories uh, that Francis, like St. Francis and then Boff here brings us into, like when you were mentioning, um, that that Franciscan way of thinking about democracy. It reminds me too of this wild quote in a uh, Willem Flusser, who's like a media media theorist who also lived in Brazil. Uh, Willem Flusser wrote this book called Vampiro Tutus Infernalis, which is about squids. Uh, the squids, <laughs> the vampire squid from hell. 
And it's a really interesting book. It's a very weird book, but there's a cool moment in it where Flusser says uh, there's kind of two ways of thinking about biology. There's a right wing view, which is Charles Darwin's view, which is that like, you know, the story of biology is like from the smaller organism up until the human being and the human uh, deserves their place at the top of that process. Um, but then there's also a left wing view of biology, which he says is St. Francis's view which sees the human being in solidarity with every other creature uh, on, on the earth. And I think that is such a cool way of thinking about a, a sort of radical left wing Christian view of uh, ecology, like to see ourselves in solidarity with, you know, the bugs and the snakes, the gross stuff, the stuff that grosses me out <laughs> and try to think like, well, <laughs> I have a relationship of solidarity to that extremely yucky thing that I don't want to touch. Um, that is such a cool challenge for Christians. Yeah, it really is. Well, I mean, you know, we talked about Francis a while ago in that uh, that one episode. I can't remember who else we were reading. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. you know, if like Francis, Francis is the communist that got, uh, that got um, you know, counted as a saint in the church. But the communism that he's talking about is one that's pretty big, right? It's not just about poverty or mm -hmm. people. It's also about, yeah, uh, like bugs. <laughs> it's about it's about <laughs> the environment. And that's something to consider. You know, I mean, like some political philosophers have worked this out in ways that I think are kind of compelling, but maybe not quite there. Not in the way that Boff does. Like, um, oh, uh, Bruno Latour. He's a guy that we've talked about on this podcast a few different times. Um, we talked about his book, Rejoice. Rejoicing? I can't remember what it's called. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Rejoicing, it's a cool yeah. book for sure. Anyways, he has another book that is complicated and frustrating, um, but like maybe full of interesting disagreements called We Have Never Been Modern. And he's trying to do this kind of like sociological study of science that tells us something interesting about how science is actually very complicated. And in some ways he's right. And I think some ways it's like, I don't know, bizarre. But um, anyways, towards the end of the book, he's making this sort of like political philosophy out of it um, called the Parliament of Things, where like um, in our political processes, we should really consider the environment as like sort of a, a part of the elect, like the, uh, the democratic process, you know, of these parliamentary procedures. And I think there's something cool about that. Um, but there's also something kind of like boring about that because at the end of the day, Bruno Latour is a liberal. And there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of problems with the way that that works out. But in Boff, there's something different, right? There's um, th there is a sort of like <laughs> there's a there's a parliament of things for sure. But the, the but it's through like direct democracy or something. It's through uh, a type <laughs> yeah. of Franciscan one bug, yeah, one bug, one vote. Um, uh, yeah, throw bugs at cops. I don't know, something like that. But um, but there's like something more radical that that he's saying here, and I think it's even more compelling than a I don't know a liberal like parliament of things. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's a deeper democracy, a direct democracy, a radical democracy. It is. I mean, it's pretty classic theology, I guess, doing politics, which is to say, it's pretty hard to build an actionable platform <laughs> yeah. out of that. Uh, but it is a really good orienting framework to think about actionable platforms and to try to, yeah, just um, get you know, yourself situated in it, the world. It is hard to build an actionable, an actionable platform off this kind of thing because, like, how would you do it, right? Like, I don't know. You you give the you give your, you give a bunch of bugs a desk in the parliament and uh, down <laughs> down in the Congress, you got a, a pile of snakes sitting on on something, and that's cool, and they can vote if they want to, I guess. <laughs> no, um, but like. <laughs> I think they're really interesting types of like, I guess this is something um, I think interesting that media studies kind of people do in academia. This is the only interesting thing that they do in academia. 
Um, media studies people will often um, really engage with like sort of contemporary media art projects. Um, and there are all kinds of very weird ones about like how you collect data from, um, from, I don't know, the environment surrounding you. Like how do you come to know the world around you through different types of like different arrangements of like sense perception, um, different ways of hearing, different ways of like reading moisture from the grounds. Anyways, there's all these like wild art projects around this, um, this particular thing. Um, but anyways, I think those, those are actually really fascinating because they're not actionable platforms for politics, but like, I think they start asking questions through artistic inquiry that end up being really useful. Like, um, you know, if you want to involve, um, the environment in political decisions, like you have to start figuring out like, well, how do you listen to the environment or how do you listen to certain parts of the environment or different segments of it? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, like scientists can measure like glacial melt or how, how warm a certain like area is getting over time. And that's interesting, but there's even like more granular and like interesting ways to know the world that we live in um, that we mostly don't think about because um, of anthropocentrism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, it's interesting just to think through, uh, yeah, how to represent like the voice of creation in different ways, because the thing about the cry of the earth and Boff has talked about this in other parts of his writing, like on his blog as well, is that like <laughs> when the cry of the earth gets strong enough, like we will hear it and we will not. Yeah, like it. like it makes itself heard in natural disasters, right? Like the thing about the poor is like you can try your best to keep the poor quiet until they too kind of bubble up. But, you know, if you're if you're very bad and effective, you can repress that for a long time. The earth, you can't really repress right. <laughs> like Bill Gates wants to, you know, flood the sky with his extremely weird uh, clouds to block out the sun or whatever. Like that's not going to do it. <laughs> um, and trying to find ways to hear the earth that are more gentle toward creation or like inviting creation to speak in these different kind of mediums. Um, I agree. It's like really interesting to be able to. I guess, find channels to hear the earth a little bit differently and not just wait for the earth to like make itself known because we're not listening yeah. at all. Um, I should also say too that like all of those things I just said about like art and like whatever, those are, that's like extremely like white people stuff too. Um, you know, there's all, there's all kinds of things to say yeah, about of course, like, yeah. um, like indigenous ways of knowing the world are, are like different or can be different. And that's something right. to pay attention to as well. But that was the, the weird art example was just like the one that's most, uh, <laughs> most recognizable to me. Um, a, a former academic. So all that say, there's more out there than what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A former academic and a white person who is also stuck in an anthropocentric way of life. Et cetera, <laughs> That's right. Et cetera, right. For sure. We're, we're um, constantly limited by yeah. all these things, but um, I don't know. It's good to know that there's a larger world out there and that we could listen to other people too, who could, you know, who, who know things that are different than us. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, we should have spent more time on all of that at the end, uh, all the most exciting stuff, but we are getting up to the end here. Um, any last notes about Boff, Matt? Uh, what's your, your hot take on this big book report? Yeah, my hot take is that people should really listen to it. I think there's something cool in Boff that you don't get um, in other liberation theologians. Um, this, this sort of anthropocentric stuff, this stuff about like eco-theology, I think is all really important. Um, especially that it's tied into a type of democratic vision in the world. I think that's cool. Um, and also, I think mm -hmm. um, Marxists should pay attention to Leonardo Both, even if they're not particularly religious, because there's something really fascinating and I think empowering about the way he thinks about the poor as a type of like revolutionary class um, that can liberate themselves. 
So um, it's great. It's a cool book and it is full of challenges, but people should get into it for sure. A plus great book report. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, including probably my cat, who appropriately has been running around my apartment this entire time <laughs> in an episode about anthropocentrism. Your cat wants to be on the podcast, can... and that's how yeah. that's that's a democratic right, I think. That's right. Uh, the podcasts. Uh, <laughs> you can support uh, this podcast and my cat. You can make sure that my cat gets fed by going to patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Um, you can find us on the Internet all over the place. You can listen to our intro music again. <laughs> I don't know where that sentence is going. Our intro music is by Amoria Armstrong and our outro is by the Illogical Spoon. We'll see you next week. Get up at church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. Lisa, what else?